Hey, church, do you know what Jesus' final prayer on the night that he was betrayed? It was that the believers may be one, just as him and the Father are one. See, this idea of unity is the greatest manifestation of God's glory within our own hearts and with a lost, broken, and divided world. Today, we're going to hear from Pastor Brad as he shows us the importance of unity and gives us practical ways to promote unity within our church family. So whether you're a part of our church or not, let's worship together. Welcome. Uh, We're one step closer uh, to meeting in person. We have a full band instead of one person on the screen this morning. And so we are going to worship together. Let's worship. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in all his love for me. All his love for me. Who the sun sets free, always free. His grace runs deep. While I was a slave to sin, Jesus died for me. Yes, he died for me. Who the sun sets free, always free.
I've carried a burden for too long on my own, and I wasn't created to bear it alone, and I hear your invitation to let it all go. Down, and I know that I need you. I run to the Father, fall in the grace. I'm done with the hiding, no reason away. And my heart needs a surgeon, my soul needs a friend. So I run to the Father again and again and again and again. Oh, my condition had a plan from the start. Your son for redemption, the price for my heart. And I don't have a context for that kind of love. And I don't I can't comprehend All I know is I need you I run to the Father Fall in the grace I'm done with the hiding The reason away And my heart needs a surgeon My soul needs a friend So I run to the Father to you that you're there with open arms we just thank you so much for your love for the sacrifice of your son on a cross we can't thank you enough you're worthy to be praised so we honor you this morning it's in Jesus name amen
well, when we first headed into this whole coronavirus more than 10 weeks ago, my biggest concern was the potential death toll, even right here in our own church family. I assumed based on all I was hearing and reading that I would be doing funerals for people whom I dearly love. And the financial impact of this pandemic weighed heavy on my mind as I thought about the number of families in our own church who would be impacted and suffer and how it might impact our church budget and necessitate deep cuts in significant ministries and change what we can do. But what I did not anticipate and could not have seen coming because we've never been here before is just how contentious and divisive and polarizing this whole transition out of a quarantine and back into whatever normal is going to look like could be, right? I mean, you would have thought after this recent brush with death and fear that all of us as Americans now would just celebrate how we got through it together. Praise God. But that's not what's going on right now, is it? Political parties can't even speak civilly about it. Christians who are both quoting Bible verses can hardly speak calmly to each other because they're not quoting the same Bible verses. And married couples who have been through many other trials before can barely speak about this one because of the escalating emotions that get in the way and keep them from really listening to each other. And that's a key phrase. For this whole season of pandemic, isn't it? Escalating emotions, right? I mean, on the front end of this pandemic, the predominant emotion that you could see all over the world, we all shared it together as human beings, was fear. It's coming. It's coming. What's going to happen? What will it look like? How will it impact me and my loved ones? Fear. But as we transition out of this quarantine... More and more and more and more. I sense another emotion just as strongly in the mix now. Frustration. And if that doesn't seem like a big deal to you, let me help you. Frustration is our favorite euphemism for anger. Because it doesn't sound as ugly and sinful. But listen to me. When you cut down into the heart of a frustrated person and you cut down into the heart of an angry person, they both look a lot alike. Because they both have a strong conviction, an opinion, a preference that they want to see promoted and move forward and somebody or something is in their way. And so now we've got this toxic combination of fear and anger swirling like a tsunami in our culture. And oh, the danger of this, folks, when you understand your Bible, the danger of a combination of fear and anger swirling like a tsunami is that when fear and anger dominate, it leaves little or no place for love and people Start getting crushed along the way. People created in the image of God. And so it's no surprise that with this tsunami of fear and anger swirling the way it is. That this past week we've seen a fresh, fresh outbreak of conflict that has erupted over social injustice, that has spilled over into violence and destruction in several of our cities across the nation. And Christians who claim to know Jesus can easily get sucked into this same vortex of emotion. Suddenly, political allegiances and other social categories begin to take precedence over the fact that we are citizens of another kingdom first. And we are followers of Christ Jesus first. Not Americans, not black, white, rich, poor, educated, uneducated. Citizens of another kingdom, followers of Christ Jesus first. And he calls us to live and act radically different than everybody else 
even during a pandemic, transitioning out of a pandemic, or any other season of confusion and social unrest. And for many Christians right now, it seems that the center of their frustration is when to reopen campuses or facilities and to to have services again, worship services again in real time. So hear me now. I want to be as clear as I can. Please know that I and the staff and the elders are completely zoomed out. We're zoomed out with meetings and counseling and community groups and trying to do ministry through computers at a distance. And none of us, none of us thinks that church online is just as good as church in real time. No way. We are longing for the day that we could worship together again in real time at our facilities, on our campuses. We long for that and we want that. So different ones of us now want you to know behind the scenes, you wouldn't know this, but different ones of us now are in meetings every week with pastors in our community, as well as other pastors on a national level, trying to gather as much data as we can to make the best possible decision as to when would be the most effective, safe, and credible time for us to reopen our campuses and re-engage in worship services at our facilities. So here's the real question that I want us to focus on today. Why is there so much tension between Christians? And why would Christians who all love Jesus still have so much conflict between each other? You ready? This is going to be worth the price of admission right here. Ready? Because we are all still big sinners just like everybody else. And we all still have strong, sometimes even stronger after you're a Christian, convictions and preferences and opinions just like everybody else. But here's what I want us to all come back to today. I want to focus on what we have that other people do not have. God's Spirit living in us and God's Word alive to us. God's Spirit living in us. God's Word alive to us. In other words, Christians have God's Spirit. And the fruit of His Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. We've got God's Spirit living in us. We've got God's word alive to us. In other words, our thoughts are not our only thoughts. Our wisdom is not our only wisdom. We've got God's word to guide us and God's spirit to change how we do what we do as we do it. And so turn with me in your Bibles. That's where I want to turn our attention today. What we have that everybody doesn't have else have that should change how we go through these times. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading in verse 20. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all humility and gentleness. With patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, 
Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now here's what's happening. At this point in the book of Ephesians, Paul is transitioning out of three glorious chapters of indicatives where he is simply brought to bear on the Christians all that God has done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. Nothing you need to do in those first three chapters. You just need to know what God has done and who you are now. And he's transitioning out of three glorious gospel-centered chapters of indicatives into three very practical chapters of, in light of this, now live like this. Live like this. And as far as Paul was concerned, his top priority of what he thought believers should know and work on And be seriously focused on was unity. You're like, really? Of everything he could talk about? Yep. If you go on to read the book of Ephesians, you'll see that Paul's going to go on and talk about the things that we do think are so important. Communication, sexual purity, idolatry, conflict, marriage, parenting, workplace relationships, spiritual warfare, and more. But that's not what Paul thought, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was a top priority. That's not where he started. He starts by calling us to do everything we can to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit of God in the bond of peace. Maintain unity in the family of God. You see, Jesus died. Here's why this matters so much. Jesus died to make unity a reality. That's my first point. Number one, God calls us to work on something that only Jesus could have started. You see, he's not calling us to make something happen, create something, do something in your own strength. No, he's saying God did it in his son. Now it's your job by his spirit to maintain it, keep it healthy, work on this, make it a priority. You got to go back to Ephesians chapter 2 to see how Jesus died to make unity a reality. Look back there with me. Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He's not talking about peace between us and God. He's talking about peace between human beings that think very differently People groups who used to hate each other. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's what Christ did to make unity a reality. Christ gave his life, died on the cross to break down that division, that hostility, that hatred that naturally exists between people because of our sin. And so now why would God through his spirit by the apostle Paul call us to make unity, eagerly maintaining the unity of the body? Our number 1 priority to be thinking about. I'll tell you why. Because Jesus said that the greatest apologetic, the greatest apologetic to the reality of how the gospel changes people forever would be how we love each other, even when we differ with each other over convictions and preferences. 
Jesus said in John 13, they will know you are my disciples. Not by your strong gifting, by your strong opinions, by your courage, by your, by your love for one another. Our unity, our love, our forbearance is the greatest apologetic to a lost and dying world of the power of the gospel because they cannot pull that off. They can't pull that off with their own resources. So that's my second main point. God calls us to keep working on something that the world cannot ignore. Unity in the midst of diversity. Unity in the midst of diversity. Oh, listen to me. It doesn't matter how much Bible you know. Doesn't matter how much Bible you know. If you're not a peacemaker with the same top priority that God has of eagerly maintaining the unity of the body and the spirit of peace, then you will jeopardize or even destroy the testimony that we're supposed to have to a lost and dying world that would cause them to even listen to this glorious message that we proclaim. It's our love. It's our unity in the midst of diversity that Jesus said would cause the world to give an ear then to this gospel message that we proclaim. That's what Paul's talking about in Philippians 2. Today I'm going to bounce back and forth from our main passage, Ephesians 4. But I'm going to bounce over and grab chunks of Philippians 2 all throughout this message. Because it also is focused on helping us understand how would we maintain oneness and unity. And it's got Christ right at the center of it. Paul's talking about that in Philippians 2 when he says in verse 14, Do all things without complaining and disputing. He's talking about without complaining in the church family about each other and disputing in the church family with each other. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Why? So that you may become blameless and harmless children of God. Without fault. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. The world is already crooked, twisted, perverse, Filled with conflict and complaining and disputes. That you may be children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast to the word of life. You shine as lights in the world. And you bring light to the gospel and cause the world to even be interested in that gospel that you proclaim. When they see, not perfect, but unity, love. How do they do that? How do they get along? How do people this diverse get along with each other? But don't make a mistake right here. Our chapter, Ephesians chapter 4, is about unity. It's not about uniformity. There's a big difference. Cults, you think about it, cults insist on uniformity. And they get it done usually with strong human personalities that end up having everyone drink grape Kool-Aid, right? Cults insist on uniformity and get it done with strong human personalities, guilt, and condemnation, and intimidation. Christians, God's called us to strive For unity. And we do it by the power of God's spirit in us. Big, big difference. We're striving for unity, not uniformity. And unity comes by God's spirit working from within. And God's grace working from within. Not pressure from outside. Unity comes from within. And is a work of God's spirit and God's grace. While unity, uniformity is the result of pressure from the outside to think the same way and do the same thing on every issue. Now, Christians have been guilty because it's our human nature of taking the church and trying to do that to it. We're all going to dress the same. We're all going to decide what movies to watch. We're all going to make the same school choice. We're all, we're all, we're all 
It's a sinful tendency of human beings to go from unity to uniformity in the church. But we're talking about what God and his word has called us to. Not uniformity. Unity. That is a work of God's spirit and God's grace from the inside out. So I want you to notice how in verses 4 to 6, Paul highlights what makes us the same. And it has nothing to do with pressure from the outside. Look at verses 4 to 6 in Ephesians 4. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. Notice right there, the entire trinity, the entire trinity is wrapped up in those three verses as Paul exults. In what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit has done in every one of us to make us the same. What he's done in every one of us. In other words, Paul is giving the objective basis or ground on which unity rests as he uses that word one seven times. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all. But then it's worth noting how he rolls right out of all this oneness and sameness. Into highlighting how Jesus himself has made us different, different. Which is what he's doing in verse seven. Which is why it begins with the word, but it's a contrast to all this oneness and sameness. Verse seven begins with the word, but, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Different grace and different gifting among God's people who share a oneness on the main thing, who have a ground on the main thing of one faith, one God, one spirit, one hope. But oh my goodness, God graces us and gifts us very, very differently. Remember how in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, it's not in your outline, but it's worth writing down. 1 Peter 4.10 says that believers are stewards of the manifold grace of God. Peter didn't say we just have the grace of God. God has given us steward, grace and we, we are stewards of it and it's going to look different. The word manifold means, means different, different colored, different variegated, manifold, variegated, multicolored. God's grace and God's gifting is going to look different in different ones of God's people. In other words, Paul is highlighting how God gives every believer a different measure of gifting and grace to serve in the family of God. So that we're not all going to see things the same way or have the same priorities as to what we think should be done first. Think about it. Surely you've been in situations like this and have bumped right up against this. huh? A person with the gift of mercy... Or discernment, or leadership, or helps, or administration can see the same situation go down, but not think the same thing about what should be done first. A person with the gift of mercy wants to hug them first and just spend time with them and encourage them and listen to them. Different grace, different gifting will see the same situation. Differently, especially as to what they think the top priority is as to what should be done first. And so what do we do? What do we do when we come to moments like these? And they happen quite often, do they not? More than we wish. And, and often, if we're not careful on a human level, we think the answer is to drive everyone out of the church who doesn't think like I think on this. And then we would have unity. No, then you would have uniformity. Then you would be more like a cult than a church. The answer is not to drive everyone out of the church that doesn't think just like you. The answer is in this passage, and it's radical. That's my third point. Number three. What should we do? Oh, God calls us to move forward in a way that we would never 
choose on our own. We would not have thought of doing it this way. And that's what Paul's talking about in verse 2. Look at verse 2 again. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Oh, I want to break that verse down for you because each one of those words, each one of those words is worth chewing on. So here's what I think he's saying. First, letter A, cultivate humility in the midst of your conviction and preference. Look what's on the front end of verse 2. With all humility. Oh, I don't think it's an accident that Paul leads leads out with humility in verse 2. And notice, not just a little bit of it either. With what? Say it. All. Say it again. All humility. In other words, Paul is saying by the Spirit, oh my goodness, it's going to take tons of this for you to make this work. It'll take truckloads of humility for you to maintain Unity. Truckloads of humility for you to maintain unity. We tend to think the way we'll have unity is I need to be very persuasive and win the day with my view and win everybody over. That's the answer. More knowledge, more data, more persuasion. Don't hear me saying, let's be ignorant. But at the end of the day, knowledge and persuasion is not what the Bible puts before us for unity. Humility with all Humility. You see, it doesn't matter how much you know, how much you can do, or how gifted you are to do it. If you don't go into it with all humility, you will do more harm than good. It's like that person who doesn't just mist on some cologne, but they bathe in it, right? You know who I'm talking about. Someone's coming to your mind right now. They don't just mist on some cologne. They bathe in it so that you can smell them coming. So that when they hug you and you get home, it's still on you. You have to take off your clothes and burn them. It will never go away. I still smell them. You guys, people ought to smell us coming. And it ought to be the smell of humility with all humility. And when they walk away, that should be what they're left with. Not how clever you are, not how harsh you were, not how over the top domineering you are, not how you bullied them, but they walk away and it's humility that they caught. Humility, humility with all humility. Paul drives the same thing home to the Christians in Philippi when he says in Philippians 2, 3, do Nothing from selfish ambition. Now, here's the problem. Sometimes we think, oh, but this issue is so important. The stakes are so high. This is so critical. Surely right now I could set aside these normal Christian guidelines and just go for it. No. Do how much? When is it appropriate to set aside humility? Never. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Wow. We would never have thought of that. And right there, that verse is bringing into view the heart of so much of our conflict with other people. Oh, listen to me. So many times, get this, one of the biggest problems with our conflict with other people is not what we think about the issue It's what we're thinking about them, even if we don't say it. I'm smarter than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm better than you. You're an idiot to not think what I'm thinking right now. What is wrong with you? How could you not think what I think? And very few people say it, but oh, you sense it, don't you? And so this passage says, do nothing from selfish ambition Here's where I think we should go so I can get us there any way I want. No, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant, more significant than yourselves. So, yes, please study, pray, investigate, think hard and come to a personal 
strong conviction about any number of issues. But then listen to me. Once you come to your own personal conviction, hold that conviction in a hand of humility with a heart of love. Hand of humility and a heart of love that is keeping two things in mind that you can only keep in mind. That only humility would keep in mind. You ready? Number one. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. And number two, God could actually lead other believers who love Jesus as much as I do, maybe even more, to believe or choose differently. Only humility, only humility will allow you to think those two thoughts. The Bible does not teach, do not have a strong conviction. Romans chapter 14 tells, let each man or woman be fully convinced in their own mind. The Bible is not against opinions or convictions. The Bible is against us getting in the flesh and driving those opinions and convictions in a sinful way that tramples over people created in the image of God. Come to a personal conviction. Have preferences, study, think. But then hold that conviction in a hand of humility with a heart of love that keeps thinking two things that only humility would lead you to think. I could be wrong. And God could lead other believers who love Jesus more than I do to believe differently. Think about even regarding this pandemic, right? Now as we're transitioning out, Oh, you can just hear the chatter. You can hear the roar. Some Christians think we just came out of a pandemic and others think we just came out of a plandemic. Some Christians think we should wear masks for our own safety or out of love for others. And others think it's ridiculous and it does nothing. Some Christians think we should still social distance and others are so done with it and ready to just move on. Some Christians think a vaccine for COVID-19 is the answer. Let's get that vaccine and get it out to everybody. And other Christians think we should just prescribe the $15 hydroxychloroquine that's already on the market. I could go on, right? But here's what I want you to understand. Here's what I want you to understand. Each group believes what they do based on what they know which is largely based on what they read. They believe what they do based on what they know, which is based largely on what they read. And so what people don't seem to realize and are not willing to admit is that when you go through a time of confusion, has this not been a huge time of confusion and conflict like what we've been going through, it throws us all into a state of information overload. Oh yeah, 12 weeks ago, it was a lack of information. We just don't know, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. That is not the problem now, right? Whoo, we're in a state of information overload so that people no longer turn on the news or go to the internet to gather information to make a decision. What we have going on now is people go there looking for affirmation on what they've already decided. And when you do that, you can find it. Here's a video from an expert that's saying, oh, this was real, this was serious, this was dangerous. Here's a video from another expert, medical expert, who's saying, no, it wasn't. You can find a video here, a video here, a blog here, a blog here, testimony here, testimony here. And people are no longer going looking for information. To make a decision, they're going looking for affirmation on what they already think. And so, oh my goodness, what could turn down the volume or reduce some of the heat that we're all feeling right now? Humility. And not just a little bit of it. With all humility. And so listen to me. Read your blog. Watch your video. But when you put on all humility, here's what that should do. 
Watch your blog, watch your video, make your decision. But then you don't need to forward that video to all of your friends trying to convince them of your position. They must believe and think what you believe. Let it be just that. It's your own personal, humble conviction. And if somebody asks you about it, you'll tell them. But you're not driven to compel them to think like you think. Oh, but Paul's not done. Look what he says next in verse 2. And, so start with all humility and gentleness or meekness. The Greek word can be translated either way, gentleness or meekness. In other words, Paul is saying, letter B, recognize that your strength becomes destructive unless it's harnessed to meekness. We don't have time to unpack it today, but this passage is talking about strongly gifted Strongly gifted people that God gave to the church. But that strength, that strength has to be a strength under control instead of out of control. The Greek word for gentleness or meekness right there is a word that refers to a powerful animal like a stallion or an ox that has been trained and domesticated so that it's now under control instead of out of control. You do realize, I hope, Under control is very useful. Out of control is very destructive, whether it's in animals or people. God wants us to be under control. He gave us great strengths, but your strength does not entitle you to be like a bull in a china factory and just crush people and trample people because you're so convinced of what you think and you have to promote it. You realize that one of the biggest problems in a church family is super gifted, strongly opinionated people who are out of control instead of under control because they have not cultivated meekness. Meekness. And don't make a mistake. Meekness is not synonymous with weakness. So if you're saying, but I'm not a weak person. I'm a strong person. God made me that way. Great. Meekness is not weakness. It takes a very strong person, you guys, to rein in their thoughts and desires and the passion and in the intensity. Very strong to be like Jesus. It takes a very strong person to be like Jesus and to consider the needs of others more than yourself. It takes incredible strength to lay aside your own sense of rights and entitlement. And to consider the needs of others more than yourself. But Paul packs a few more life-changing words into that one little verse. Look at what he says, letter C. He says, oh yeah, be passionate. God's not against passion. Be passionate, but patient with other people who don't see things the way you do. Be patient with other people who don't see things the way you do. Look at it in verse 2 again. With patience. Bearing with one another in love. I think it's interesting. The Greek language has more than one word for patience. Hupomeno is the word for patience that means to be patient with a circumstance or a trial. To stand up under the load of a circumstance or a trial. He doesn't use that Greek word. There was a Greek word for patience that was saved for exclusively being patient with people. Isn't that what's harder for us? Being patient with people so many times is harder for us than circumstances and trials. And that's the word he uses. Because so often we feel like it's people that are in our way and are slowing us down. People, people. And so notice the wording in verse 2. He's not talking about bearing one another's burdens. There's other places in the Bible that talk about that. Like Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Bear one another's burdens. He's talking about calling us to do a radical thing in bearing one another when that other person is the burden. You're not bearing one of their burdens. They are the burden. When other people are the burden, you're called to bear. And if that sounds terrible, I'm encouraged that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, after he wrote this amazing little book, 
about community and Christian love called Life Together. He says this, quote, I find people extremely exhausting. I find people extremely exhausting. Why? Well, it's, it's people, right? People that most often affect our agenda and timetable because they don't just wear us out. They slow us down as you take time to consider their needs and their interests instead of just plowing ahead with your own. That's what Paul was talking about in Philippians 2 again when he says in verse 4, Philippians 2, 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. In other words, the only question is not, what do I think, what do I want, and how much data is it based on? How convinced am I that this is right? If I'm super convinced, I can just plow ahead. Nope. There's another question. What do others think? And what would others want? Look out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. And maybe some of you are saying, but Brad, aren't we on a mission? Jesus gave us a mission. He left us with a mission. We got to get it done. We can't have people slowing us down. Well, here's what I would say to you. If you read your Bible, all of it. If you read your Bible, all of it, you'll see that getting ministry done is not the only goal. In fact, it's not even the primary goal. Do you know what God's primary goal is for every one of us as believers? God's primary goal for every one of us as believers. Not getting stuff done, but becoming Like his son. God does not just care about the mission. He cares about who we become in the midst of the mission. He's more concerned about who we are and who we are becoming than what we're doing and how fast we're getting it done. God is not in a hurry like we are. Not getting stuff done, but becoming like his son is God's primary goal for us. And that takes time and often happens best in the mix of mess with other people. Who you might think are slowing you down, but God would say, oh, no, no, no. I'm doing a marvelous work right now of making people more like my son. Finally. What you can see clearly in our chapter. Two things you can see clearly, clearly in, the, in this chapter. Main point number four. God wants to spread his glory and make his people more like his son. Spread his glory, make his people more like his son. You can see how Paul teased this whole thing up with the glory of God as he heads into this unity chapter. Remember I've told you chapter divisions were not in the Bible. They're not inspired So that's why I started in chapter 3, verse 20, because that goes with, I think, chapter 4. The glory of God and the work that God is doing in us to make us more like his son. That's why he says, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Then and only then he says, therefore... Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which he's called you. When you read your Bible, you'll see that we're driven. We're to be driven by love for others and God's glory. More than proving a point or promoting a cause. In fact, I would say to you, when you get caught up in... And it happens to us. I can be as guilty as anyone else. Get caught up in. When you get caught up in proving a point or promoting a cause, the glory of God and people most often become collateral damage along the way. God does not want us to get lost in a cause and caught up in proving a point. Well, I just want to prove a point. I'm trying to prove a point. God never calls us to prove a point. So let me ask you something. With with this tsunami of fear and anger and escalating emotions swirling in our culture and in your homes and in your heart, perhaps. 
Consider this. What would those who know you best and live closest to you say characterizes you the most? Loving others? Would they say, oh, he's, he's so loving. She's so loving. Glorifying God? Oh, they've got the big picture. It's not about them. It's not about them. Loving others, glorifying God, or proving a point, winning an argument, promoting a cause. Paul goes out of his way to highlight the glory of God that's put on display by the diversity of God's people who are willing to keep the main thing the main thing and eagerly maintain the unity of the body and the bond of peace. I've told you before as we were going through the book of Acts, and that's where we're headed next week. But I pointed it out as we're going through the book of Acts, you guys. And it's worth repeating that the cultural and racial diversity of Christianity is one of the most astonishing things about it that sets it apart from every other world religion. And it's been that way from the very beginning. We saw in Acts 8 where God's spirit goes out of his way to save an Ethiopian eunuch. From the very beginning, God said, this is for more than just white, Caucasian, European people. This is for the world. This is for the world. This is for the world. This is good news for everybody. From the very beginning. Here's what you see as you look across the world. With every other major faith, you can find 80% of their followers located on one or two continents. There's Hinduism. There's Islam. There's Judaism. But with Christianity, you find Christians spread all over the world. With about 20% of them in Africa, 20% in South America, a little less than 20% in Asia, 20% in Europe, and a little more than 20% in North America. No other religion even comes close to the diversity of Christianity because the gospel is more focused on a radical internal change than it is external conformity to certain cultural norms. The gospel is an inside-out work. And so right at the end of this chapter, Paul tells us why God would fill his church family with so much diversity and then call us to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Look at it at the end of verse 15 of Ephesians 4. He says, it is so that we would grow up, grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. You realize there's nobody in the family of God who has arrived. I have not arrived. The elders have not arrived. Doesn't matter how long you've walked with the Lord, how many years you've been a Christian, nobody has arrived. We all still need to grow up, grow up into him who is the head, Christ. Christ. Become more like Christ. That's what it's all about. Growing up into Christ. Not just getting things done and certainly not just getting things done your way, but becoming more like Christ. And God knew that happens best in the midst of diversity that will require humility and meekness and patience and forbearance and love. Oh, listen to me. If you're here and you're not a Christian today, I call you to put your trust in Christ. Put your trust in Jesus as your Savior. He is the one that laid aside his rights to the glories of heaven and took on flesh and came into this world to suffer to the point of death on a cross to pay for your sins, none of his own, but to pay for your sins. So as we close... As we close, I want you to take a closer look at what he did for us. As we think about what he's called us to do for each other. Anything God calls us to do for each other will always pale in comparison to what he already did for us. Look at it with me in Philippians 2. 
Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, as we close. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not cling and grasp and hold on to his rights. No. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, our Savior. Today, today, bow your knee and surrender your life to Jesus as your Savior. Come to Him. He did for you what you could never do for yourself. Because one day, you will bow the knee. Every person will. And you will call Him Lord Jesus, but He will not be your Savior on that day. He will be your judge. It'll be too late. Today is the day of salvation. Today, turn to Jesus Christ as your Savior who gave his life for you. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. And thank you for your son. Oh, fill us with your spirit. Keep your word alive to us and on the front of our thoughts. Not our thoughts, but your thoughts. Not our ways, but your ways. Not our desires and our agenda, but yours. And oh God, in the midst of so much confusion and conflict, would you help us to live radically different and to become more like Jesus and to be a part of the solution instead of the problem in our world for your glory and our great good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the darkness we were waiting Without hope, without light Till from heaven you came To fulfill the law and prophets To the virgin came the word From a throne of endless glory To a cradle in the
of heaven held its breath Till the stone was moved for good For the Lamb had conquered death And the dead rose from their tombs And the angels stood in awe For the souls of all who come to one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen.